0: In 1967, just a few months before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, spoke to a uh, group of students in Philadelphia. It was the junior high class of uh, Barrett School there in that city. And he talked about work, and here is something that he said about work. Listen, he said, If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweet streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweet streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Now, uh, this is a wonderful call that, that Dr. King delivered, a wonderful call to excellence in work. And he says it like Martin Luther King said everything, lively, vividly. Uh, but it's built on an assumption that I think the Bible would like to adjust just a little bit. It's an attitude toward work here that everyone has had at one time or another, and it's the idea that there are some jobs that are inherently more honorable than others. Some jobs are more significant. Some jobs are more worthy than others. There are elite jobs, and then there is your job. And the value system that you place on your work or on jobs in general uh, reflects your own values. If you love money, then you value jobs that make a lot of money in finance. If you love sacrifice and service, you should be in the military. You should be a police officer. If you um, are a good Christian, you should be a pastor or a missionary. (laughs) There's good jobs there's bad jobs. There's honorable professions, and then there's less glorious jobs. Forbes magazine once started an article by asking its readers this question. So what Forbes said. You may think you have the worst job in America, but are you always on call and facing a deadline, working in a high-stress environment all for very little pay? Do you routinely work outdoors on the hottest and coldest days of the year? Does your work constantly put you at risk of severe injury or death? If not, you probably don't have one of the worst jobs. Uh, The magazine article continues, and it did a report based on a a study that a website called careercast.com did. They studied 200 uh, uh, common jobs in the United States, and they compared them On a very very calculated algorithm, they evaluated them on on four things, salary, job outlook, work environment, and stress, and then they ranked them from best to worst. The best jobs, according to this ranking, were actuary, biomedical engineer, software engineer, financial planner, and occupational therapist. Here's the lowest-ranked jobs in America, according to this study. Lowest salaries, highest stress, greatest danger. Here they are. Butcher, dishwasher, roofer, meter reader, dairy farmer, oil rig worker, enlisted military personnel, lumberjack, and newspaper reporter. I don't know how that one got on the list. Newspaper report. It's because a newspaper reporter wrote this article. That's why it's on the yeah. list. I wonder if uh, your job belongs on the list. Do you think somewhere close to the bottom? Uh, we are, these days, instead of moving systematically through a book of the Bible, that's our normal practice, we're talking about work these few weeks between now and Resurrection Sunday. We started in the book of Genesis, and we talked about work in the world that God made. Work is... A good thing. Um, and Moses wrote these wonderful verbs to describe work. We're, we're cultivating, we're keeping, we're filling, we're subduing these wonderful things when it comes to work. I wonder if your job doesn't feel so wonderful, though, sometimes. And actually, it, it's worse because we only experience work in this broken world. Work is cursed, not completely beyond. it's not completely undone. But you live in a broken world with broken systems and broken people, and there you are trying to work. There are cosmic forces on the outside and on the inside opposing you as you work. And sometimes trying to accomplish things at work feels like trying to tie your shoelaces while riding a roller coaster. You want to get that perfect knot, but you're being jerked up and down and around all the time. Think with me for a minute about the jobs that are at the bottom of that list, if you, if you ranked them. Uh, not necessarily the bottom of jobs in terms of, of stress or salary, but I want to think about terms, uh, jobs at the bottom of the list in terms of significance. Jobs that seem not to make any difference you have a job like that? People with jobs like that are the ones who, when they read the Dilbert comics in the Sunday paper, they're the ones who laugh the hardest. Or when they watch The Office, reruns of The Office, it makes the most sense to them. You know, you've worked there, that company, with those people. I want to help you this morning, and to do that, I want, to turn, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. The little epistle of um, Colossians. Which is in the New Testament, right after the book of Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, And uh, the easiest way to find it maybe is to go to Revelation at the back and turn left. There it is. Colossians chapter 3 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. And we're going to look at verse 22. Um, We've talked about work in the world that God made. We've talked about work in the fallen world. We're going to talk today about work in the world that Christ has redeemed. And Colossians follows Paul's normal pattern for writing a letter. He he gives some uh, teaching, some doctrine at the beginning, and then towards the end he applies all the doctrine and teaching to the church. And he starts, uh, really this is in Colossians chapter 3, Verse 1 he starts, but in verse 18 he gets to what is normal for him in his letters, writing these commandments or uh, instructions to people in the households of the the church. So in verse 18 he talks to wives, verse 19 he talks to husbands, verse 20 he talks to children, 21 to fathers, and verse 22 he talks to slaves. Now, we have talked about slavery often enough and recent enough that... um, uh, we're not going to spend a great bit of time talking about it right now. Remember, this is slavery, but it is not slavery like our experience of slavery in our own country, our own past. Um, slavery is always dehumanizing, and I'm sure there were places in the ancient world where it was as abusive as it was in our culture, but uh, m- that was not always the case. Slavery was not based on race. Um, In the ancient world. And it was common for slaves to be educated. You could uh, buy a slave who was a trained medical doctor or a trained teacher. Slavery wasn't permanent. It was more like indentured servanthood than uh, the chattel slavery that we're familiar with. You know, the Bible, we talk about this, the Bible doesn't defend slavery, nor does the Bible launch, though, any full-scale assaults on it. Rather, uh, I, the Bible, it seems, is intended to take out slavery from the inside out. It tears apart at the seams and, and breaks it out. Here, uh, Paul is addressing Christians who are slaves. Their masters may or may not be Christians, And they work in these environments and Paul is addressing them because they are free moral agents and they need to make some decisions about their attitude towards the work that they do. Um, His theme here is he's going to talk about how being a Christian transforms slavery. And we're looking at it here not because there are slaves in our congregation, but there's, there's power in this message. If the gospel is sufficient to transform the experience of slaves... There was nobody who had dirtier work than slaves, more repetitive work, less honorable work than slaves. And if Christianity can change how these people respond to their work at the lowest of the low in society, what could it do for your job? Paul expected the gospel to lift them up. So uh, how does this change your perspective? Well, let's let's read here Colossians 3.22. Look what it says. That's what I want to focus on, that last line today. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And actually, it's meant to change your perspective. Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger in their book, The Gospel at Work, repeat this line through their book based a little bit on this phrase. They say, who you work for is much more important than what you do. Who you work for is more important than what you do. Whether you're a slave or a surgeon, a street sweeper or a CEO, a dishwasher or a dentist, who you work for is more important than what you do. And this paragraph is meant to help you say, regardless of the work, regardless of who pays you, it's meant for you to say, I work for the Lord Christ. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you two things. First, I want to show you why we work for the Lord Christ, why it's reasonable to think in these terms, why that makes sense. And then what I want to do, secondly, is I want to show you how working for the Lord Christ makes a difference. I want to change, I want to help you this morning change your thinking about how you approach and how you accomplish the work that you do in this broken world. I want you to work as if you are working for the Lord Christ. So let's talk about why Paul says this. Why is it reasonable for Paul to say it is the Lord Christ you are serving? Why do we work for the Lord Christ? And I'm going to, I want to do this by taking you into. A broad, sweeping way that the Bible describes life in this world, our experience. This is a theological way in which the Bible divides the world. It's foundational for what Paul's arguing here. And actually, it, it will help you, I think, show you, I want you to see one of the ways that the, your Bible is, is put together. As the New Testament unfolds, one of the ways that the Bible describes human beings is by placing us in two categories. You are either in Adam, that is you're on the Adam team, or you are in Christ, on the Christ team. You belong to one of these teams. Adam is the captain of one, Christ is the captain of the other, and your place, your, your team is a reflection of your spiritual condition. Adam the man, we've read about him, he's been our focus since the beginning of this series on work. He's the human being, he's made in God's image, he's placed in the garden that God planted for him. He was the recipient of the original mandate to work, to rule the world and to keep it. And God to help him gave him a bride to work with him. And a few short chapters into the Bible, of course... Uh, through Adam, disaster comes. He was tempted in the garden, he he disobeyed God, and he unleashed into the world death, despair, destruction. Um, This is not the team. The Adam team is not the team that you want to be on. It's not the team you want to cheer for. The Adam team is the Philadelphia 76ers of creation. All right? Finally they won, right? right. Um, But if you beat a team from Detroit, does that really count? That's just Detroit. Oh, Detroit. That's the Adam team. All right. Um, uh, This is not the team you want to be on, but it's the team that you were born on. This is your natural condition. You get on the Adam team by being born because he's the father of us all. Now, the New Testament here introduces another beginning and it introduces another man who comes. He's the God-man. He's Christ. He is also in the image of the invisible God. He also has a mandate from God, not just a mandate to rule, but a mandate to uh, redeem. He experienced temptation. He did not experience temptation in the beautiful garden like Adam did. Where did he experience temptation? In the wilderness. And he passed. He didn't fail like Adam did. Um, and, and he succeeds. In fact, Christ succeeds everywhere that Adam fails. He does exactly what Adam was supposed to do uh, uh, perfectly. Uh, and what surprises us here, as, as the story goes on here, is the fact that Christ takes Adam's place, not in the, the rebellion Christ is not the rebel that Adam was, Uh, the exact opposite. But Christ took the uh, punishment that the rebel deserved. He did not commit the crime, but he did the time. This Christ, he takes on himself the despair, the destruction, the death that Adam unleashed. He bore on the cross Adam's guilt and the guilt of everybody who walks on Adam's shoes. And he died, and he died, and he rose again. And now what all authority has been given to him. And he has been given a bride, just like Adam, to come along and help him in accomplishing his work. You're born on the Adam team, and you come to the Christ team by faith, by recognizing and trusting in what Christ did, that his death on the cross is sufficient payment for you. You make this conscious decision of dependence. I'm going to trust in Christ. Jesus is the second Adam who succeeds where Adam fails, who fulfills the mandate that Adam was supposed to fulfill. The Lord Jesus is the perfect creation filler. He is the perfect cultivator. He's the perfect subduer. He's the perfect keeper. I was a junior in high school when our church hired a new pastor and soon after he started his ministry um, uh, at our church, we, uh, my sister and my dad and I, we invited him to go play golf with us. So we went to the golf course and we were playing. And, and uh, I, I don't remember who it was the first person to putt when we reached that first green. Um, and uh, we we putted and and uh, my, my pastor said as the ball was rolling across the green, he said, "Go to school on it. Go to school on it." It's kind of a funny phrase. And I know exactly what he meant. What he was saying was, wow, the rest of us, we get to watch how that guy's putt goes. We're going to learn the lay of the green and how the green rolls by watching that first person putt. There's always, isn't there a disadvantage to going first? If you have to go first, there's a good possibility that the person who goes next is going to show you up. Adam shows up and he goes first and he fails Christ comes, he goes second, and he succeeds, not to show Adam up, but because of his own inherent excellence, Christ did what Adam could not even have, have done. He's, he came into a world, Christ did, that was in much worse shape than the world that Adam came into, and the Christ man passed every test. That's how marvelous, that's how good he is. Now, I want to show you this here in, in, in the Bible. Um, uh, a few minutes ago, Pastor Scott read from Romans chapter 5. That's where we, we see this very specifically. Uh, we're not going to look at it again because we just read it a few minutes ago. But here, this is, Paul is making this argument. There's Adam, and through him, death came because uh, through him, sin entered the world. Death came to us all, and, and now in Christ, there is righteousness, there is life for all. You should keep that in mind, this message in Romans 5, because it runs so counter to some of the ways that we're taught or encouraged to think about ourselves and our life in this world. What's the message that we get from people from, well, from Hollywood and, and you see on television? You are the master of your own fate. You can create your own destiny, and you need to create your destiny, and you should create your destiny because you have it within you to create your own destiny. That's what all of our heroes on the screens do. You know, that's that's a good message as long as you are smart enough, healthy enough, strong enough, rich enough, and good-looking enough to put it into practice. But it's not a very good message if you're not any of those things. And if it's true that you're the master of your own fate and you control your own destiny, what about, that's a cruel, cruel message for those who are born with disabilities. People who are are born with, with defects. What do we say to them? You're the master of your own fate. You can create your own destiny. That's what you should do. And therefore, if you've got a problem, it is Your fault. That's a cruel message. Uh, The message of the Bible is that you are not in control of your own fate. You are not the master of your destiny. You are born on a broken team. Now, the New Testament here uh, fleshes this out a little bit even more by how it treats Psalm chapter 8. That is on your orange sheet, your, uh, whatever color that is, in your bulletin. I want you to look at Psalm chapter 8 there and see what it says. This is a poetic description of Genesis 1 and 2. The author of Psalms took Adam's mandate and put it into a poem. Look what Psalm 8 says. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands and put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea." Now, notice here how Paul uses that. You, God, when you made Adam in the garden, you put everything under his feet. Now, look how Paul uses that in Ephesians 1. God placed all things under his, that is Christ's, feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is the second Adam. Everything's under his feet, just like it was for Adam in the garden. Or 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all who are in Christ will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies where? Under his feet. Now, Hebrews makes this even more explicit. There is a place where someone has testified. <laughs> That's a wonderful ancient way of referring, He's quoting here. Uh, it would, you can never use this method right in writing a thesis or a research paper at school. Somewhere, somebody said, but it works in the book of the Bible. Just tell your professor it's biblical and it'll be fine, okay? No, it won't. There is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now, in putting everything under them, Hebrews, the author says, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus. Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see the world the way it's supposed to be. It's broken. Things don't work this way. Um, Everything is not under the feet of human beings. But we see Jesus. It's a wonderful phrase in this, this paragraph. We we see him. He he is the champion. He is the conqueror. If you're on the Adam team, you're in a sorry condition. But there is not a foe that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot defeat. He He defeats, he undoes what destroyed Adam. Adam fell to the tempter in the garden. He was overwhelmed by creation in his work and eventually death killed him. Christ, on the other hand, resisted the temptation in the wilderness. He mastered creation, and he destroyed death from the inside out. This rule and creation is why so many of the gospel stories are there to teach us. You know these stories really well. Jesus commands, and what happens? Fish jump into the net. Who is master of creation? Jesus stands up in a boat, and he says, Hey, knock it off! That's a loose paraphrase. Peace! Stop it! And and the wind and the waves obey him. Uh, he, He rules. He reigns. He gets on a donkey that has never been ridden before and he rides it into Jerusalem because he is the Lord of creation. He rules. He reigns. Do you want to be on his team? Absolutely you want to be on his team. If the Lord Christ and Adam are choosing up teams for dodgeball... I know whose team that I want to be on. I know who I want to be the captain of my debate team. If the Lord Christ and I were partners in Euchre and Jesus says, I'm going to go it alone, I'm going to put my cards down and watch him work the table. This this should shape the way that you think about how you speak to others about Jesus Christ. It's interesting, one of the ways that that this mandate that Adam received shows up in Jesus' life is at the end of his life when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We think about this a lot, don't we? We think about our responsibility to tell people about Jesus Christ and invite them to follow Jesus Christ. When you're talking to somebody about Jesus Christ, you're not just offering them a solution to their problem. You are not, Jesus is not merely the answer to their problem of sin. We're not merely offering them a Savior who bridges the gap uh, by his death. That, that's true. That's what he does. But you, when you speak to people about Jesus Christ, you are offering them, you are sharing with them about the Lord Christ who has conquered everything and everything, that they, everything else that they have aligned themselves with, that they think will make them happy, that they think will satisfy them, pales in comparison to him. You, you say to people, I have the best news about the most magnificent person you have ever heard of who has ever lived, and if you don't follow him, you are a fool. Don't start with that. But that's what you're saying to people. This is what you're offering them. The Lord Christ. Look, saints, the sight is glorious. Look at the man of sorrows now. He has returned from the fight victorious. Every knee is going to bow to him. He's the Lord of creation. He did what Adam could not do. He is sufficient to be served. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That makes perfect sense. Now, with that as a foundation, though, let's move on here to this second issue namely, how does working for the Lord Christ make a difference in what you do? How does working for the Lord Christ make a difference in what you do? Remember, who you work for is more important than what you do. Think about this with me for a minute. If the Lord Christ were your boss, how would that change your job? If you went in tomorrow and on your manager's uh, 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 door there was the new title, Lord Christ, how would that make a difference in your job? Some of you, I know, you're cynically saying to yourself, well, finally we'd get rid of these incompetent people because Jesus would fire them, I know. And we'd finally have some decent equipment. And he'd get rid of all these dumb forms that we have to fill out that nobody ever reads and that don't make any difference at all. The Lord Christ would fix my job. I know that some of you are thinking that. But I want to think about how you approach your work and how you accomplish your work. Um, here's how it makes a difference. First, you come to realize that your work is bigger than your job. Your work is bigger than your job. I Wonder if you're discouraged at all by the smallness or by the ordinariness of your job. You think to yourself, I don't do anything beautiful, I don't do anything significant, I don't do anything immediately helpful or anything consequential. Um, Maybe you work in a cubicle jungle and and your world seems as small as the the, the space that you have to work in. Tim McGuire was once speaking at a, a seminar called Faith, Religion, and Values. Listen to what he said Work is brutal. Work is a four-letter word. Most people don't think that work would possib- could possibly have anything to do with spirituality. They assume that these two words cannot mesh. But if we bring our souls to work, then we can transform our work. That is when our work can begin, though, to transform us. The problem for most people is that their work transforms them into something bad, something bitter and tired and broken. If you are serving the Lord Christ, you recognize that your cares and concerns, they're outside of just what you do. His boundaries extend beyond where you work, so your life does too. There's a bigger purpose, there's a bigger cause, there's glory to be found and celebrated inside your work. If the Lord Christ sends you to do it, you are never just sweeping floors. If the Lord Christ asks you to do it, you're never just changing diapers or entering data into a computer. Christ is there. If Christ is really who the Bible describes him to be, whatever he asks you to do is infused with meaning and purpose. Your attitude changes uh, dependent on who you're working for. You bring different priorities. You bring different values to your work. Your work has a different shape to it. You look beyond just the hospital or the school or the factory or the construction site where you do your work because the master of work uh, everywhere is overseeing what you do. Someone asked me last Sunday if, if I thought that based on the fact that work is frustrating, if, if I had this idea that um, you have to stay where you are regardless. If all work is hard and all work is frustrating... Do I, am I required to stay at the job I have in, in light of this frustration that I may experience in it? See, serving the Lord Christ helps us understand that work is, is bigger than just your job. And, and, and working for the Lord Christ is not the same thing as working merely for your company. Um, Unlike these slaves in Colossians 3, you have freedom to leave and work somewhere else. And and your greater devotion to the Lord Christ grants you the freedom to do so. If you can work somewhere else and serve Christ's purposes better, then go get a new job. Um, If if you could uh, pursue more effectively some of the other priorities he sets for your life... You are, by moving on, you're serving him. Take the other job. Look for it. And take, you work under Christ, your work under Christ is bigger than just your job. Now here's a second implication of serving the Lord Christ. You pursue a higher standard of quality. You pursue a higher standard of quality. Verse 23 of Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Paul uses the same word here that the Lord uses, right, to describe how we love God with all of our heart. Work at it with all of your heart. Focus on your work. Pour your life into your work. Put your mind into it, your strength, your energy into the work that is before you. And Paul seems to imply that recognizing that you're working for the Lord makes a difference in how you work. He says, um, since you are, you work at it with all your heart because... You're working for the Lord and not for human masters. Because it's him, you bring a higher standard of quality to work. Paul Dixon, when he was the president of Cedarville, used to say to us all the time, everything a Christian does should have quality stamped all over it. Now, because Paul has, uh, because Christ has already fulfilled the creation mandate and has himself, he has taken responsibility for cultivating and filling and subduing and guarding, we, we're not driven by fear or by anxiety in this call to work. He's already succeeded at everything you have ever done, every task you've ever tried. Christ, the Lord Christ, if you are in the process of building a wall, the Lord Christ, he is master of work. He can build the wall masterfully, and he sent you to do it. So go build the wall well. If you are cleaning someone's teeth, recognize it because Christ fulfilled Adam's covenant perfectly, the Lord is the master of dirty teeth. He is the ruler of plaque. He is the king of Tartar. And you go to do this work because he sent you to. And you can work well. He he is the master teacher who can put together lesson plans like you cannot believe. But he sent you into the classroom to do the work. Do it with all of your heart working for him. Now third here, serving the Lord Christ means that you are motivated by eternal rewards. You're motivated by eternal rewards. I think actually motivation is the key element in this passage. Um, That's that's mainly what this is about. This is mainly pushing you to think about why you do what you do. Why do you work? Why do you go to to work every day? What's What's in your mind your chief aim? Uh, This passage actually warns us about that and how we think about that. Look at verse 22. Again, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That little phrase, "their eye is on you," it can mean a number of different things. It's got some different flavors. One, it means don't just do the work that's visible. Don't do enough to get by that you only can see. I'm not sure exactly how this works at your company, but you know how it works in your home, right? You say to your children, go clean your room. And 37 seconds later, they come downstairs and say, I'm all done. So you go up and you look, and it looks, to the eye, somewhat clean. Till you open the drawer, and you realize that they took everything that was on the dresser and just swept it into the drawer. And everything that they could not find another place for is where? Under the bed. There it is. That's working for the eye. Or maybe it, maybe it just means that you emphasize the things that, that your boss is going to see and you only do those things. Leave the work that doesn't get noticed to the other chumps on the job. You're going to do the work that, that the boss can see most specifically. Or maybe their eyes on you means that you only work hard when they're actually looking at you. Your boss isn't here, so I'm going to slack off. Hmm. In contrast to only doing what impresses your boss, this passage says you're working from, for the Lord and you have from him an inheritance as a reward since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. Now, the New Testament speaks about a lot about rewards, and I'm not sure what kind of reward he is talking about here. I actually think the emphasis is on this word inheritance, because he's talking to people in a house. Think about it. If your slaves were in the family, but not really in the family, I mean, they lived in the house, and they worked in the house, and they, they did the master's bidding, but when the master dies, that slave is not going to inherit anything. He's not an heir of the estate. She, if anything is not bequeathed anything in the will. She's in the will as property, that slave is. But in contrast to those slaves serving in this home who are not heirs of the estate, Paul says, in Christ, you're serving Christ, you have an inheritance as a reward. What if, what if Paul here, what, what Paul is saying, I think, when he's talking about the inheritance coming from the Lord Christ, he's saying two, two important things. One, he's saying that your job performance is not dependent on your boss's ability to punish or reward you. You have a reward, you have something to look forward to that is outside of what your boss can or cannot do for you or do to you. The second thing I think is even more significant here if if you're working for this inheritance, it means that your work is going to outlast life as you know it, and here's how. I think it's important to think about this because most of us do work that is repetitive and that will be undone and can be undone very very quickly. I imagine that there are very few things in your job that you do that when you finish them you think, that is the last time I'm ever going to have to do this. Um, you, will, you will vacuum your carpet in your house and you will never reach eternity perfection vacuuming. It will, you will never reach the point where the carpet will never need to be vacuumed again. Um, you will mow your lawn several times this summer. You will never, when you finish mowing the lawn, look out across your grass and say, I will never have to mow this lawn. I have reached lawn perfection here. You may build a house and that house may last for 2 or 300 years at most but someday that house is coming down. You you may sell a car on the lot and you look and it'll disappear and it'll be a beautiful sight to you and then it'll be replaced immediately by another one. Sell this one now. Oh. This September is going to be my 15th year at Grace and I figured out this week that I have since I've been here preached about 900 sermons. In that time. Someone said to me a few years ago, I wish I could remember more of your sermons. I said, I don't remember all of my sermons. Don't feel guilty about that. Before we started digitally recording them, we used to record them on tapes, and we would tape over the tapes. They're gone forever, which is probably a mercy, frankly. Most of the work that you do is not going to outlast your life. It's, it's repetitive. It's physical. It's physical. It's it's very concerned with life in this world. But if there is a reward, if there is an inheritance from Christ for serving him, here is how your labor will abide in his accounting, in his measuring. Steve Roy, in 2011, wrote a book. It was called What God Thinks of When We Fail. And he tells a story about a young violinist. It's this man who had trained for many, many years. He was not that old, but uh, he, he, when he was in particular younger, had, had gained some sort of a reputation for his skill. Well, um, after he had done a few concerts in his teenage years, he, he got uh, very anxious about crowds. In fact, he hated crowds. And though he continued to perfect his craft and continued to work on playing really well, he would refuse over and over again invitations to perform. Until finally... He could not avoid uh, uh, the criticism, and he, he scheduled a concert in the largest concert hall in London. The place was packed when he showed up. He, he walked out into the stage, and he sat down on a stool alone in the stage. There was no orchestra behind him. Uh, there was uh, no conductor, nobody else but him. And he, he played, sat on the stool, and he played for an hour and a half without interruption. There were people that were there, the, the newspaper critics were there. And, and when he first started, they were taking very copious notes um, to, to write their critique in the newspaper. But as he played and as he continued, uh, their, their pens started moving slower and slower, and they stopped writing and put their notebooks down, and they just listened, as, as everybody else did with this, rapt attention. After 90 minutes of this beautiful music... The last note was ringing in the air, and, and as he put his violin down, the crowd just roared in its approval. They were astounded. They stood. And people noticed, who were watching the, the violin player, noticed his response was very strange. He didn't, he didn't seem to pay any attention at all to the crowd. He didn't, in fact, he, he was evidently, as, as he looked around, was scanning the crowd. Finally, he found what he was looking for. He smiled, bowed, and walked off the stage. The people who were running the theater said, wondered about this. They said to him, well, what was going on out there? The crowd is cheering, and, and you didn't... What happened? He said, well, you know, I, I don't like crowds. I didn't really want to be here tonight. Um, but just before I came on stage... I received word that my teacher, my master teacher, the guy who led the classes that I went to, was, was going to be here in the audience. And I, while I was playing, I was looking all over the audience for him, all over the crowd, and I couldn't find him. And when I stopped, I looked, and I was still looking for him, and I couldn't find him. And then when I finally saw him, he was standing and cheering and smiling with everybody else. And I said to myself when I saw him, If the master is pleased with what I've done, then everything else is okay. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He's the master of all work. By his death, his resurrection, he has mastered every one of our occupations. So work as if you are working for the Lord Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord Jesus, we again acknowledge that you are the one who has succeeded where we have failed. You have done excellent work. You have obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And um, uh, the Lord, God your Father, has, has placed things under your feet because of your all surpassing excellence. Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is our champion, who is. The conqueror of all. Would you help us? Would you help us to heed Paul's admonition to work as if we are working for the Lord Christ? You know the temptations that we felt. Paul writes about them. He's honest that we work just to curry favor, and sometimes we work just to please the eyes of our boss. Forgive us for succumbing to that temptation. Uh, Lord Christ, would you enable us to remember this sweet reward you have promised even as we do our tasks for the 10,000th time. Help us, O Lord, you who are master of all. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.